Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is Season 6, Episode 10. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett, a member of Outer Temple Chambers, presenter of the Legal Hour on LBC Radio and founder of the HR Inner Circle. This week we're looking at disability discrimination law. I'm playing extracts from a webinar I did with Karen Jackson of Didlaw on disability discrimination. The things you'll hear include considerations when an employee is absent with work-related stress or anxiety, how a discrimination arising from disability claim works when there are multiple disabilities, and a little about the balancing act between making reasonable adjustments and performance management. This season is all about me picking my favourite episodes, my favourite dozen episodes, from the series of 30 employment law webinars that I hosted in 2021, where each session I had a leading employment lawyer answering dozens of questions over Zoom from hundreds of solicitors and HR professionals. I've not only picked my favourite 12 episodes of those 30 webinars, but I've selected the best half dozen questions and answers from each session for you and reproduced them in this podcast. Karen Jackson is the founder-director of Didlaw, which is a London-based solicitor's firm specialising in disability discrimination and other health-related workplace issues. Karen founded the firm in 2008 after undergoing a successful heart transplant at Papworth Hospital in 2006. She was the first British woman to receive a beating heart transplant in a trial of the OCS technology, which is now being used to revive dead hearts for use in transplantation. If she wasn't a lawyer, she'd be a novelist or an interior designer. Before turning to Karen Jackson, a big thank you to the two sponsors for this season whose support for this podcast makes it possible for us to create, record, edit and host Employment Law Matters. And so their support makes it possible for you to discover everything you want about all things employment and HR law related. So a shout out and a huge thank you to Radar and to Breeden Consulting. You'll hear more about them later in the episode, and you can also find out a little more about them by visiting the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the next season of Employment Law Matters, which is coming up this autumn, you can find out a bit more about sponsoring at go.danielbarnett.com slash sponsor. That's go.danielbarnett.com com slash sponsor. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. First of all, how does discrimination arising from disability claim work? So discrimination arising from disability, not direct discrimination, where there are multiple disabilities. It's a pretty simple um, answer to that one, actually, because um, Section 15, dis- disability arriving um arising consequence of discrimination arising in consequence of disability even kicks in when there's a disability so um, it doesn't really make any difference whether there's one disability or three disabilities it's two different parts of the act so section six of the act says is this person a disabled person for the purposes of the act 
do they meet that that test? And if so, did provisions around disability kick in? Um, when it comes to Section 15, um, remember, this is quite a loose test. And all that is required is for the employee to show that there is a connection between their disability and the, the unfavourable treatment. It's not because of their disability that they are being treated in the way that they're being treated. So the short answer is it doesn't make any difference. As long as there is one disability, you're home and dry. Well, you're not home and dry because you've got to get through the various hoops around um, knowledge and justification. But um, this, the, the section will kick in whether there's one or more disabilities. Same same uh, test. Where an employee doesn't disclose their disability to an employer in an application form, so they conceal the fact of a disability, is there any form of reduction of compensation that you can argue for if you're acting for the employer? Is it, is it akin to contributory fault in a disability discrimination claim? I don't think so. And I think that's a very unattractive argument to run. Um, I have seen it run a number of times. Um, and actually, quite often, an employer will seek to show that even the person who is claiming disability discrimination didn't believe that they qualified for the protections because on their application form for the job, they didn't tick the box which said, do you have a disability? I think the the issue with this in practice is that particularly with invisible disabilities, people are unlikely to disclose them on an application form or during a recruitment process because it might mean that they don't get the job. Um, and there was actually a case on this in the county court about 20 years ago. I'm afraid I don't remember the name of it, but where the a local authority tried to rely on the fact that the councillor had not declared her longstanding um, issue with depression. And the judge gave giving judgment for um, the councillor, the judge said, uh, you can totally understand why she would not have declared that on her application form and it, and it would be unfair to use that um, against her in the context of a, a discrimination claim. So, no, I don't I don't think there's um, I don't think there's any scope there at all. Last question from me, Karen Jackson, before we turn to the questions asked by everybody else. Can a disabled employee argue that continuing with performance management against them is a failure to make reasonable adjustments? I think they absolutely can. And I, and I see this a lot in practice, remembering that the whole thrust of reasonable adjustments is to level the playing field uh, for employees who have disabilities and to remove barriers. So if you take a classic example, somebody who suffers from uh, depression, let's say um, performance starts to tail off a bit at work manager notices and says you know is anything wrong because you're not quite your usual self your output's not fantastic anything going on and the employee says no 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 I'm fine I'm fine fast forward a few weeks and the person needs to take time off takes some time off to get better comes back to work is it going to help that person come back to work and get back up to speed and get back up to performance if they're immediately put on a performance improvement plan and have their manager breathing down their neck Absolutely not. I see this happen all the time. Um, and I quite often will say to an employer, as a reasonable adjustment, get this person back on track, get this person back into the workplace to avoid another absence. Can you just please hold this, this process in abeyance until they've had an opportunity to improve? Because I think that, that, you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes where there's a connection between the performance issue and the illness it's not really reasonable to insist on performance management at, at that at that stage. And I would I would argue that that is um, 
Absolutely. That is what reasonable adjustments are all about. I don't recall seeing a case on that um, to prove the point, but I, I would run that argument. Karen Jackson, following a dismissal for long term sickness, how much evidence will a tribunal expect to see when considering an employer's objective justification defence for a Section 15 claim, uh, disability uh, discrimination arising from a disability? For example, if a retailer said they needed to dismiss to ensure deployment of staff met customer needs in the run up to a peak period of trading, would a manager's oral evidence suffice? Or would a tribunal expect to see financial figures, staff costs, etc.? Karen Jackson. I think the answer is always the same when you're talking about tribunals. Um, and it is that tribunals like evidence. <laughs> fact. Um, so, you know, you're, go- you're going to want a maximum amount of written evidence. You, you need to be able to justify the decision. You know, if there will have been meetings between between management, there will have been discussions with the employee. I mean, it's absolutely vital that you document um, the reasons, because otherwise, you know, tribunal is going to look at look at it and say, well, you know, there's absolutely no evidence here that this has been considered carefully and that, you know, all the right all the right decisions um, have been made. So. So, yes, I mean, I'm 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 always saying to my clients, you know, you might not think it's important, but, you know, make attendance notes. You know, record a conversation that you've had with somebody in an email afterwards, you know, just to follow up on the chat that we had today, blah, 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 blah. You want maximum amount of paper uh, if you're going to go in front of a tribunal and, and try to justify your position. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. Natalie White has asked, To what extent can an employer justify requiring good communication skills and good teamwork for a position where uh, a requirement for good communication skills and good teamwork may be discriminatory for some, such as those with autism? This is a perennial problem, but when an employer advertises a job or seeks to fill a role, they are asking that a person has certain requirements. So you know, it might be you need a degree. It might be you need to know how to do you know, engineering. It might be you need to be an architect. Where there is a role that requires um, a certain level of communication and, and uh, you know, forward-facing interaction, I would have thought it was unusual for somebody who maybe has communication difficulties to want to be in that role anyway. But what you have to remember is that an employer does have a right to say, you need to have these you need to fulfill the essential requirements of the job to be able to do this job it's a banal analogy but it's a bit like you know hiring a window cleaner who has vertigo you know you just you're just not going to do it because the, the the two things are incompatible so you know i think that an employer will have 
you know, if if this, if the role essentially requires a function that cannot be fulfilled because of a disability, I think that they will have some justification for that. And it, and it's unfortunate that it might impact um, certain category of employee, but I don't think it's necessarily discriminatory. Anonymous attendee, an individual's being dismissed for gross misconduct as part of the appeal. They allege a pre-existing medical condition, which wasn't known of before. What can we do? He doesn't have two years to qualify for unfair dismissal rights. Well, if this is where the knowledge defence comes in, um, which applies across lots of different um, parts of the of the disability discrimination provisions. But if at the time of making the decision, the employer didn't know that there was any condition then there cannot be any criticism of that decision that has been made on the basis of the disability. Now, whether in the context of an appeal, the person says, well, I wouldn't have done any of that anyway if I had not had my disability, which has impacted my ability to do that, to do that work, then I think an employer has to look and say, well, you know, would it have made any difference? I certainly think that an employer needs to consider um, whether it would have made any difference, but whether that will get the person out of trouble, um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's something we see quite often in the context of um, performance management and disciplinary issues where somebody will suddenly raise, raise a flag about a health issue. And I think a key point in relation to this appeal that we're we're discussing here is, you know, first thing is get medical evidence. You know, you can't you can't take it at, at face value. You need to delve a little bit more and find out if there is something that could impact uh, the situation in the way that's being suggested. But I think you'd be on um, shaky ground if you just dismissed it out of hand and didn't consider it in the appeal. Rachel Hancock's asked a really interesting question. Can you provide guidance, Karen Jackson, on how to decline reasonable adjustments? Yes. Um, I think the first thing I want to say about that, and it's not answering the question, but I will answer the question. I'm a big fan of trialing reasonable adjustments, because if you can say to a tribunal, this person asked for this adjustment, we trialed it for four weeks, didn't make any difference. You can then say to the tribunal, well, that, you know, it didn't alleviate the the substantial disadvantage that the person was suffering. We tried it. It's not operationally sustainable for us to do it. Therefore, you know, it's not a reasonable adjustments failure. So I'm I'm often a little frustrated that people don't try things, at least, you, you know, to placate the employee. But more than anything, to give to give yourself evidence for the tribunal that you've tried it and it doesn't work. So. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing about reasonable adjustments that, that, as well that I see quite commonly is there, you know, employee says, I want this. It's a reasonable adjustment. Well, you don't have to just take it at face value. You, you, you go back to the employee and you say, OK, so you've asked for this. How is that going to help you? What is the disadvantage that, that is being caused and how will this particular thing help you? I dealt with a case where somebody during the course of their employment had become a um, paraplegic and was in a sales role and insisted on traveling by first class plane. And I was acting for the employer and we basically said, 
you are provided with um, somebody to travel with you. You know, you have assistance getting to the airport. We, we provide all of this assistance. What actual difference does it make to you whether you whether you travel business class or first class? It doesn't. It doesn't add any. It doesn't remove any further disadvantage that you've got. And therefore and therefore that's not reasonable. So I think that there's a tendency among some employers when a reasonable adjustment is requested to just go, oh, they've asked for a reasonable adjustment. We've got to make it because otherwise we're going to be in trouble and we're going to face a tribunal claim. Well, no, actually, you're allowed to say, you know, what's it for? How do you say that will help you? And, and ask a few more questions. I mean, I think just be a little bit bolder, obviously, in a sensitive manner, because dealing with people insensitively is always going to get you in trouble, um, regardless of whether they've got a valid claim or not. But it is OK to ask those questions and to say, you know, I, I dealt with a case years and years ago where somebody wanted their office painted a different colour. It was just kind of like, how could that possibly alleviate any kind of issue that you're suffering? It might do if somebody on an autistic spectrum. I don't know. But, yeah, just just ask the questions, probe and, you know, look at. I'm, I'm always frustrated that people don't look at the Quality and Human Rights Commission code because it's got loads and loads of examples in there about the kinds of adjustments that will be might be reasonable and, and how to go about it. Um, it's everybody's desktop friend. Other than, of course, uh, um, Daniel's Employment Law Handbook. Do that plug, Daniel. Do you like that plug? (laughs) That's a fantastic plug. Thank you so much. And in fact, uh, I've just put a link in the chat to the code, which you can see on the screen. And breaking news in the last 60 seconds, it's been announced if you're a royal family uh, aficionado that Prince Philip has had a successful heart procedure. There you go. Good luck to him. Now, uh, just... Carrying on with this question, then we'll move on to something else. Um, I remember, Karen, I don't know if you do, back in the day when the Disability Discrimination Act first came in, that there was actually a defence to reasonable adjustments, which is you could run a justification defence to a failure to make reasonable adjustments, which never made any sense to me, because if you could, if you had a good reason for not doing something, it wouldn't be reasonable in the first place. Yeah. But they abolished that defence, didn't they, in the 2010 Equality Act? Yeah. Pro- yeah. Probably because someone realised it didn't make any sense. Exactly. It basically, if a, if an adjustment is reasonable, then you have to make it. And that's that's the beginning and end of it. But it's that big reasonable, you know, what is reasonable in law. And, you know, on the face of it, you can often spot things that are reasonable and ones which are wildly unreasonable. But again, you know, just listen, probe, ask the right questions, because there might very well be a good reason why somebody wants something that you think is, is quite peculiar. But, you know, it is the mainstay of the disability provisions and before section 15 pretty much all the case law was about reasonable adjustments um we don't see quite as much of it now which is a shame but i also think that's because employers are much better at dealing with you know common garden um adjustments but yeah it is it is you know it's all about full and effective participation for people with disabilities you know what can you do there was a case a few years ago where lloyd's bank had to remove internal um, screens which were see-through glass because they were really impacting um, people with visual um, issues so in terms of physical reasonable adjustments I don't I don't deal with that many cases where employers are unable to make those adjustments it tends to be more around the um, sort of mental health side of things where employers not always thinking that what's being asked for um, is reasonable. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. 
So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalize on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedonconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedonconsulting.co.uk. What should an employer think about when an employee is absent from work due to workplace stress and anxiety? Okay, so I've quite a lot to say. I've quite a lot to say about this, but I'll keep it brief. The first thing to do is when somebody goes off with stress and anxiety, do not ignore them. Get somebody to contact that person. Now, it might not be a manager and it might not be an HR person. Get a colleague to touch base with that person and say, Hi, Jane. Sorry to hear that you're not well. Is everything okay? What you don't want is that person to retreat and go into a a bunker and refuse to communicate with anybody because that's that starts to be the beginning of a breakdown um, in a relationship. What you want ideally to do is to establish a contact and to say, accept, you know, don't know what's going on, not prying, but what can we do to help you? You know, have you have you seen a doctor? Can we refer you where appropriate? Can we refer you to Oc Health? I think that there's a there's a very marked difference between how people are treated when they go off work with stress than how they are treated if they go off work with cancer or you know a hip operation, and that's what gets people upset and that's what makes them ring people like me because they feel you know pushed out um alienated there's a, there's also a tremendous amount of self stigma that goes with anxiety and with stress so somebody's gone off work they're worried about their job they're worried what everybody what what everybody's saying about them they're thinking that they're you know less of a less of a person because they've you know got stress and what you what you don't want to do is is to sort of perpetuate um that issue now sometimes employers for all the want of trying can't raise somebody who's gone off sick with stress and I, and I acknowledge that 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 too can be quite a problem um i think the other things i would say is you know ask the questions be proactive don't let them go to ground if there is anything outstanding in relation to a work issue so any kind of grievance you know it doesn't have to be i am raising a grievance because of if somebody's flagged an issue listen to them make sure that they know that you are that they are being heard and that that will be addressed um, i can't tell you how many people go off sick and get and, and and get very very upset because there is an issue in the workplace that they flagged and nobody's doing anything about it so deal with things promptly and keep communications going Sue apps morning sue asks what would an employee need to do to show that an employer had constructive knowledge of a mental health-based disability? I like that question because it's a bit of a bugbear of mine when I have tried to run a constructive stroke imputed knowledge uh, claim in the tribunals. I have never had any success, even though my favourite blue book, The Code, um, flags the point that... um, employers can be imputed to know i think that it's all about signs in the workplace if you look at uh, as a bit of an aside but if you look at some of the really um big uh, stress at work cases you can you can see the kinds of um behaviors that are exhibited which um would make you 
believe that there was something wrong with somebody. So you have somebody who's a good worker, comes in, you know, happy, cheerful, suddenly is really grumpy, emotionally labile, bursts bursts into tears at the drop of a hat. There's got to be more than just your average having a bad day for an employer to be held to have constructive knowledge. Um, And that's just based on my experience in the tribunals, because, you know, an employer can't be expected to to see everything and to to be on the pulse of what everybody's feeling. But I mean, there would need to be some fairly clear signs. And I think it is things like, you know, bad temper and um, yeah, turning up late, cr- crying is a big one. Now, you might have some employees who cry all the time and you might not notice particularly, but you'll have others who just are, you know, not like that at all. I think you, the, the short answer is you've got to go quite a long way to land an employer with um, with imputed knowledge um, for it to succeed. That was Karen Jackson of Didlaw. Karen, thank you. Join me next Tuesday, the 6th of June 2023, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Gus Baker of Outer Temple Chambers, in which he answers questions on health and safety. Thank you for listening. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.